Welcome to EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. Agriculture is an area that has lagged many other technology sectors in its development, but it seems like its time is coming. Paul Rouse, a specialist ag tech investor with Regenerate Ventures, explains why. We talk about why it has lagged, what has changed, and how all these factors are now pushing ag tech forwards. If you are enjoying the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe through all good podcast services or following the link in the show notes. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today we're joined by Paul Rouse, who is Managing Director at Regenerate Ventures. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Thanks very much, Brian. Good to be here. It's our pleasure. As usual, we'd like to start by getting to know a little bit more about you. So can you briefly tell us how you became involved in EIS fund management? I guess it probably started when uh, I left the city, probably 2009, uh, and I became an angel investor. I think I made my first angel investment around 2009 into a B2B SaaS business. Found that really interesting, really enjoyed working with uh, founders and early stage businesses. Uh, And then after a number of years on the angel scene, realized I wanted to take it to the next step and and effectively institutionalize what it was that I was doing. Uh, That's when I set about launching my first fund, Fuel Ventures, with my co-founder, Mark Pearson. We launched that in 2014, focused on digital B2B startups initially, uh, and then exited that successfully and then kicked off a launch of Blackbench Ventures in 2016, which was another generalist fund. It was around that time that I decided I wanted to do more in the impact and the ESG and the sustainability. And I know they're sort of buzzwords and catch, but they weren't really in 2016. And when I realized that that was too generalist, uh, I decided to start on the journey of focusing on investments and innovation in the agricultural or the agri-food sector. So how can we feed the world more sustainably and how can we look at the next generation of startups and founders trying to come up with new and interesting ideas and technologies around building a more sustainable agri-food ecosystem. And that's what led me to launch Regenerate Ventures a few years and ago. And why did you choose Agritech? Because certainly when people think of impact, first stops usually the environment in some sense, and then maybe the social things. But Agritech sort of, sort of seems a slightly unusual place to end up. Yeah, um, good question. I There were two reasons for that. One, uh, over a decade ago, we moved back to the family farm uh, in Suffolk. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, uh, that's a farm that's been in the family for many generations. And I managed to, uh, I got an opportunity to be involved in diversification of the farm. Uh, then I got involved in agricultural policy. And this is all in parallel to the work I was doing in with angel with the angel investments in the venture capital. And after a number of years of that, I, I realized firsthand that around the challenges that farmers and and those in the food supply chain had when it came to navigating food production, navigating the changes in policy, navigating the the macroeconomic changes in the food supply chain and all that and and, and everything that comes up from that. And the other thing is, is I was looking at the environment and climate generally, and I I found, whilst I found them very interesting themes, I found them, again, too generic, I would say. I mean, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to look at technology 
that has such a broad remit as climate and a, a generic climate and, and fund where one day you could be looking at energy transition, another day you could be looking at carbon, another day you could be looking at life sciences. And, and I think I wanted to focus on something that I, I had exposure to, that, had, that I had a good understanding of, and then I saw where the market, well, I think I see where the market is going. And I see an opportunity to really support the agricultural ecosystem as it transforms into this new way of food production. And you started Regenerate or Regenerate Ventures. Do you want to tell us a little bit about them? Yeah, so Regenerate Ventures was a an idea I had after Blackfish. It was probably 2017 that I started thinking about it. And I think it's fair to say that after a number of conversations, I realized that the market wasn't mature enough to launch a venture fund at that point. I set about doing a number of different projects to help uh, increase the level of activity in the ecosystem where I launched a, helped launch an, an accelerator. I built a corporate accelerator. I looked at, I mentored a lot of ag tech startups globally through different programs all over the world. Uh, and it was probably about two years ago um, whilst I was mentoring one of the startups, that I had the opportunity to really think about whether it was the right time to launch a fund uh, that focused on this space. And I probably started this journey at the end of 2019 and launched it properly at the beginning of 2021. And I think what I've seen over the last few years, what's been really exciting is the level of investment in the sector, the level of interest in the sector, not only from investors and the market generally, but you see over the last 12 to 18 months, you've seen massive macroeconomic changes and social changes around the need to change or the desire to change the what, what and how we eat, how we consume, but also things like the Ukraine uh, um, uh, Ukraine crisis. We've, we've really had to look at what our supply chains look like and, and and what we consume and how we eat and where we're getting that produce from. So I think there's a lot of factors that have happened over the last 18, 18, 24 months that have really accelerated the level of interest, uh, adoption and investment into the sector. Well, that actually raises a question because you mentioned in 2017 it wasn't the right time. And if I look in the wider technology world... For the past decade, there's been no end of companies doing lots of exciting things in technology, whether it's B2B SaaS or consumer or whatever digital area. And I would have thought agriculture, which is a key thing for for the world, should have been getting some of that attention. And it sounds like it wasn't. Why was it not getting all this? Why was the technology sort of world not really impacting agriculture the way that it feels like it should have? Uh, yeah, another, another good question. Uh, I think, <laughs> I think, as I said, well, I think we're at the beginning of this journey. Uh, so let's let's just quickly define. So when we talk about ag tech, we're talking about the use of technology in agriculture, horticulture, aquaculture, with with effectively with the aim of improving yields, efficiency, and profitability. So, mm-hmm. so we're looking at, and 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 this is not a. I mean, agriculture is one of the oldest sectors in the world, the oldest industries in the world. Uh, it's not as though agriculture hasn't been innovating over the last thousands of years, 
It's about the sector as a whole looking for innovation and accepting that innovation and technology and adopting it. That where it's taken a lot longer. I mean, there's there's a number of challenges with technology adoption. It is a it is an old industry. It's a it's a cyclical industry. It it's, it's seasonal uh, in terms of its the way that you have to collect data and the way you grow food. But it is seasonal, so it you know there's there's a longer time for a lot of these technologies to go to market. And also because it's it's it. It's related to consumers and what we consume and, and the food production. It's heavily regulated. There's a lot mm-hmm. of policy and procedure. And that and that really is dependent from country to country. So I think you you the regulatory environment for food innovation or agricultural innovation is challenging. In, in that sense, it's a bit like far, it's some aspects like pharmaceuticals where you've got to do um, various sort of tests and diligence or whatever before because obviously we know about trials GM crops or, or pesticides, yeah. but yeah, you know, is, is is that true of a lot of technologies other than those? Yeah, yeah, I, w- I would absolutely agree. I've heard that comparison a lot. I've heard the comparison of ag ag tech or agricultural innovation with pharmaceuticals and with climate tech, mm-hmm. and I would say. I would say the agricultural sector is probably somewhere between ten and twenty years behind both. Right. The the industry is now waking up to to a a desire to change to this new revolution or, or revolution of ag, at what we would call agriculture 4.0. This adoption of technology from other industries, where you see it in some other countries, where they take technology from the likes of defense, or they take it from pharmaceuticals, or they take it from the life sciences sector or the financial sector, and they actually use technology that has has existed for a while in other sectors, mm-hmm. but actually start overlaying it in the food supply chain, which is more challenging. But because of the impact that agriculture has on global greenhouse gases, which equates to 20 to 30% of, of emissions, that there is a desire to improve the sustainability in the sector. So we're actually looking now, actively looking at new and interesting mm-hmm. ways. And I think that the other thing that's changed is, is the level of interest in adoption of, of adopting those technologies. Mm-hmm. So you, you talked about some technology you've come across from other um, sort of industries or areas. Do you have any examples in mind of that, which might give a flavour of, of of what you're talking about? I think the ag tech space is it, it, we're technology agnostic, so we look at mm-hmm. technology then that, as I said earlier, can can improve the yield and efficiency and profitability of of food production. So we've seen innovation in the digital space through the use of satellites and through the use of drones and through the use of data integration. So we would probably term that precision agriculture, taking data and 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 data that's probably siloed that exists already today, but, but hasn't been overlaid and hasn't been utilized in a way that food producers and farmers can actually utilize that that data to help them farm more efficiently. We've seen and we've seen this during the pandemic, vegetables being left in the field to rot because we haven't been able to get a number of uh, the, the, the right number of people to go out into the field and pick it. We're looking at significant uh, advancement in robotics and automation, both in field and off field. 
And I think there's 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 lots of innovation in more the life sciences space. So one of the investments we've made recently, or we're about to announce, is a uh, biostimulant, which in in the lab it's coming out it's coming out of one of the universities. In the lab, it's shown that it can increase wheat yield by about twenty to thirty percent. Now that's going to have a significant impact uh, in in wheat production without the increase of synthetic chemicals such as fertilizer. And you mentioned about robotics and some sophisticated technology here. Instinctively, and maybe this is too many people who've listened to the archers, maybe, um, the the sort of stereotypical picture we have of a farmer is someone who's perhaps less sophisticated um, and and perhaps um, not so used to technology. Is that a fair image or is, is that something that's outdated? I think like like any like any industry in any sector, you get the stereotypes. Mm-hmm. It's probably fair to say that not everyone in the agricultural sector is is more tech, is, is technology technologically advanced as they'd probably want to be. Uh, and that that has to do with a lot of a lot of things. It could be to do with education. It could be to do with the financial capital required to accept the risk and adopt technology in the first place. But I think what's interesting is that we're seeing a shift in the interest of food production. We're also seeing a shift in the next generation farmers. We're seeing the next generation of farmers being younger, obviously, Mm -hmm. also being more willing to take risk, more willing to adopt technology, more willing to share data. And I think that that level of adoption uh, of that new technology is going to go up because of that. And Mm -hmm. we're also, as I said earlier, we're seeing significantly more interest in the sector from really talented and experienced entrepreneurs and innovators. Those who may have at some point created a fintech startup, Mm -hmm. they've exited that fintech startup and they want to move into the agricultural sector. So they're bringing that experience, they're bringing that know-how and others in robotics and automation one of our one of our investments, uh, the CTO uh, came from uh, a, a FTSE listed uh, FTSE listed company, and now he's gone out and zoned to to create a robotics company. So I think I think you're seeing greater greater innovation of both sides. You're seeing it from the founders, and you're also seeing the level of adoption from farmers going up. And these people who are coming in, I mean, it's, again, maybe hard to generalize, but the, they coming in, are they motivated by doing good, the sort of impact environmental thing? Is it a certain degree where we want, we've got technology we can apply or, you know, or saying, well, actually, there's umpteen million fintechs and I don't want to do another fintech, but actually there's more space in the ag tech sectors for innovation? Yeah, yeah. Uh- I, I I think there's a com- there's a combination of drivers here. Mm-hmm. There is definitely, from my experience, there's definitely a lot of founders out there that are looking at the sector because they want to do good. They want to innovate in a space where there's significant improvements to sustainability. There's benefits, clear benefits to the environment, but there's also, as a sector. Agriculture is one of the least technologically advanced and least digitized sectors in the world. Uh And if we look at other sectors where we've seen significant innovation over the last couple of decades, we've seen 
very interesting startup to look at fintech look in the last financial crisis the number of digital banks the number of fintech businesses that have that are now worth billions we're seeing the same sort of revolution in the agri-food sector mm-hmm. we're seeing a, a a need for countries and globally to reduce emissions to get to net zero to improve efficiencies consumers are demanding changes investors in listed companies some of the big uh, food companies in the world they're, they're all demanding change so innovators are not only seeing an option to uh, an opportunity to innovate in a, in a sector that has clear environmental and ESG uh, uh, credentials but it's also in a sector that is significant has significant upside and we're mm-hmm. and, and we're only at the start of that journey mm-hmm. yeah and you also mentioned for farmers sort of capital and the ability to invest and I do wonder a little bit because certainly the limited contact I've had with the farmer and community, capital is not plentiful for most of them. It's not the running day to day on cash, but finding the cash to make a significant investment and significant investment in technology would not be easy for quite a lot of people. How do you, does that affect the sort of technologies and how you think about what you want to produce for them? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I think a majority of farmers at least in this country, are reliant on subsidies to remain profitable. Mm-hmm. A lot of other countries in a, uh, are in a similar boat. The level of the appetite to adopt risk hasn't really been very high for a number of reasons. It could be to do with age, it could be to do with policy changes and regulations, and as you said, also to do with capital. You're right. There's a lot of farmers. Uh, it, it's not a it's 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 not a lucrative business, but it is a necessary business. And I think the innovation. I like to think that the innovation that's going to have the most adoption in the near term are going to be those ones that I would term frictionless technologies. Those that are innovating, which don't require significant changes in the way farmers do things today. And if they do, it's it's it should be pretty intuitive. Uh, and and I think the other thing that most innovators are realizing now is that there needs to be a very clear return on investment for day one. Mm-hmm. So, like I said, you know, a biostimulant that can increase wheat yield by twenty or thirty percent once the field trials are over. If you if you could prove that you could do that, what farmer wouldn't want to do wouldn't want to in- increase their yield sustainably without increasing costs significantly. And, and it, goes this, it goes with automation robotics. If you can replace hundreds of workers with a few robots for the few months a year that you need them for, why wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. As long as it's cost effective. So I think the business, case, the business model uh, for ag tech still needs to develop, but it needs to it still it needs to show clear return on investment from day one. Mm-hmm. And do you think this is the reason why one of the, you know when people think about ag tech, all we hear about maybe is GM and, and sort of generating monoid seeds and whatever. Is this one reason why maybe the industry has focused on that? And that it's just okay, you take one seed, you replace it. It's kind of the same idea. Farmers don't need to change anything rather than, okay, let's get this fancy new whiz bang tractor that's only got to fork out a uh, hundred grand for. Look, I think 
I, I think GM has played a big part in innovation, uh, not in obviously not in the UK and Europe because it's not allowed. But in the last decade, you've seen a lot of noise around other innovation in the food supply chain, whether it be vertical farms or whether it be alternative proteins and alternative meat, which are very visible. Consumers are now consuming these products. You could see, you know, the changes in in consumer demand in the likes of the the, the dairy or non-dairy products. So there is there has been a lot of innovation, but it's it's predominantly been on the food side. Mm-hmm. And you mean more sort of actually what the consumer gets? Yes, exactly. Uh, and 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 I think that's where the ag tech or the ag innovation isn't as visible. Mm-hmm. And we're starting to see that with vertical farms and alternative proteins. We have GM doesn't really, or, or in the in the past hasn't had a hasn't had a good image. But there's there's a number of reasons for that. But what we're seeing is a lot of other interesting innovation around data, around financial uh, marketplaces, around the ability to for farmers to share information and share practice, and more of the peer-to-peer marketplaces out there. So, so, so there's there's a there's a drive to to look at new and innovative products in the market, which there hasn't been until recently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned the structured UK market and, and comparable with Europe and, and maybe the rest of the world. Clearly, bits of the world operate very differently from mm. you know, we, the UK and whatever. To what extent do, do you think technologies are internationalizable easily? Uh, yeah, that, that's, that, that, that's, that's a real challenge, actually. And the UK and Europe, obviously pre pre Brexit, uh, came under the same rules. Those mm-hmm. rules are, are are starting to change. We've seen the likes of the Environmental Land Management Scheme starting to be rolled out in the UK, which is this new uh, new way of or, or new incentive for farmers to farm in a more sustainable way. We see similar uh, similar programs in Europe. Mm-hmm. We see a similar drive in in other countries. Sorry, I'm not familiar with those. Can you give, maybe just give a minute on what these actually are? Oh, well, sir. So, uh, so the UK government has just has, has just started rolling out a new policy, probably the, the largest change in agricultural policy since World War II, mm-hmm. which is the Environmental Land Management Scheme, which requires or, or encourages farmers and food producers to farm in a more sustainable way and looks for sustainability improvements and mm-hmm. environmental improvements, such as increased margins, increased hedgerows, um, biodiversity, and it and it goes towards rewarding farmers for more sustainable practices than just food production or okay. or, or commercialized food production. If that's if, if that's a fair point, I think what we see in other countries is we see the level of adoption being very different based on regulatory hurdles uh, or policy hurdles that some of these some of these technologies have to have to go through. So I would say if we look at Countries like Africa, you know, African farmers are, are very advanced when it comes to mobile money. It's mm-hmm. very advanced in terms of uh, online marketplaces and actually peer-to-peer learning. We look at innovations that connect companies directly to farmers because it's it's a need. We see uh, technology that probably already exists in other markets being transferred to developing markets because we're looking at reducing the yield gap. And when I say the yield gap, we might be might be looking at ten tons 
of wheat a hectare here in the UK, but three tons in Africa. So, so we're, we're looking at technologies that can bridge that yield gap. Mm. And presumably some of the gap is, re, is a resource gap as well in terms of yeah. if the you know, farmer in Africa doesn't, can't buy the same amount of fertilizer in the UK, he's not going to get the same result. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's, I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of factors that, that have an impact on the way agriculture operates, and the way farmers operate in each country. You know, policy is one of them. Capital mm-hmm. constraints are another. Uh, level of education is another. It goes back into farmer uh, in, into adoption of this technology. I think the, the regulation, the policy, also has a massive effect on technology adoption. Mm-hmm. Whilst you might need three to four years of data here in the UK, you may only need a year of data in the US. So we're seeing a lot of, and I, I think we're going to see a lot more of this in the in the near term. Technology that's being de- developed out of what I would term agricultural innovation hubs, places like the UK, places like the Netherlands, places like the US, mm-hmm. that have international application and will be transferred to other countries and mon- and, and commercialised in other countries. And we're seeing that already, and I think there's going to be more of that in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it sounds like this regulatory... I was going to call it a burden. It's, it's, it's not a burden in the sense that actually there's a very good reason why it's there, but this lack of harmonization is a, is a major challenge or a potential major challenge. Well, I think like any like anything, these challenges also provide opportunities. You know, if you have a good technology, that technology can be used elsewhere in the world. What hasn't really existed up until recently has been a more robust agricultural innovation ecosystem. So we're seeing, as I said throughout this, we're seeing more interest from investors. We're seeing more interest from governments. Uh, there are more accelerators popping up. But this has only happened in the last few years. We're seeing universities really take an interest in agriculture. We're seeing uh, accelerators and governments incentivize innovation in the sector. Now, with more of this, it will generate significantly more interest in the sector, more investment in the sector, and also the ability to take technology into into other areas. And I and I think this this constraint, the constraint of regulation, uh, it's not going to change. Every country wants to treat its food supply system differently. Mm-hmm. So it's about trying to have the necessary drivers to be able to take advantage of those uh, of the of those markets and be able to port your technology or your team from one to the other. Do you think this desire for innovation in a lot of countries will change the regulatory environment? Because it seems to me if you're saying it, it might be a block in some countries and they, they might say, well, if this country is innovating and we're not, then maybe we could relax or find a way to say certain technologies that are less risky somehow get approved faster or whatever it is. Yeah, we're, and we're seeing, that, we're seeing that already in the last couple of years. Uh, governments, US, UK, Europe, uh, are, are all looking at deregulating or, mm. or at least reducing the regulation on some technologies. That includes the sharing of data to 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 be able to enhance precision agriculture innovation. Uh, we're looking at CRISPR and GM technologies here in the UK, which we which we weren't able to do as part un, under a pre Brexit. So there is there there is innovation. There's there's changes in regulation to to enhance. Or, or to speed up 
the level of innovation in ag. And I, I mm-hmm. think that's going to continue. Okay. And sounds like there's an element of, so if, we, if you think back five years ago, there was innovation, but it was kind of a bit isolated, a bit sporadic. Do you think there's a kind of critical mass element and we've kind of passed that threshold now? Or, or do you think we've still got to get to that critical mass where it's still, where it's going to be, um, the explosion happens, as it were? We've seen double-digit growth in ag tech over the last five to 10 years. We've seen significant interest in the food side of agri-food tech, mm-hmm. where well, we're probably looking at, I think, I think one of the latest reports was about 50 billion globally going into mm-hmm. the sector and increasing in a double-digit, double digits year on year. Now, a lot of that is going into, into food innovation, it goes into logistics, uh, some of these, some of the you've you've seen this with the likes of Deliveroo and being able to take food products to the consumer faster. But in the last couple of years, we've seen a significant interest in the upstream technologies, technologies that are helping farmers innovate, landowners manage the farms and the land uh, in a more sustainable way. So we, we've seen that now, but I think we've got a long way to go. We've we've we haven't even there's there has been exits. Uh-huh. John Deere acquired uh, acquired a business a couple of years ago for uh, for a few hundred million. There's been SPACs and listings of various uh, ag tech companies. There's been a lot of M and A activity with the large agri food and the agricultural chemical businesses. But as the, and and they're realizing that they need to innovate through acquisition. But we're only at the beginning of this journey. Uh-huh. Yeah, and that innovator acquisition was interesting because when we spoke um, before, you, you you were telling me about the structure of the ag tech market and the concentration that's sort of arisen and and how that their sort of the big the big ags business models have sort of changed. Would you like to perhaps talk a little bit about that because I think that's one of the interesting parts of this area. Yeah, look, I think the the large businesses I mentioned earlier the 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 food. Companies, the big uh-huh. ones, the Unilevers, the Nestlés, they—they're all—they—they all have significant pressure from shareholders uh, to be more sustainable, to understand their food supply chain better. So they need to get down to the to, to into the weeds. They need to understand what their farmers are doing. They need to understand what's going into those fields. And on the agricultural businesses, the ag chem businesses, who are traditionally they're, they're they're making their pesticides and they're making their fertilizer. There are two things that's happened recently. One is regulatory pressure to reduce uh, the use of nitrogen fertilizer, uh-huh. and the other is to reduce the use of harmful pesticides. And these pesticides, whilst you spray it, uh, whilst you whilst you spray it on on the field, there's runoff, and that goes into the water source, into, into the water streams, and the source and source of water needs to be cleaned up. That's a, that's that's a burden and a cost, and and needs to be regulated. So there is significant pressure from the, the very large agri-food businesses to mm-hmm. change their practices and look at a more sustainable uh, supply chain. And scope three, their ability to reduce emissions down to through the supply chain is, is going to have a significant impact on that. So they need to understand what the supply chain is doing. They need to incentivize their supply chain to improve and be more sustainable. And you're only going to do that if you change practices or you adopt new innovative ways of doing that. So... So they're on that journey now. They're starting. They're starting that. They're allocating big budgets. They're looking. They're working. They're, they're working with investors. They're working with accelerators. They're working with 
those in policy to try and work out mm-hmm. how to improve and accelerate the way we look at innovation in, mm-hmm. in, in agricultural agri-food. Yeah. And a lot of them are huge companies now. They've seen a lot of consolidation, particularly uh, you, you mentioned the ag chems, and, you know, and that's a very concentrated market. But even amongst buyers of food or whatever, there's a lot more concentration than they perhaps used to be. And that seems to be changing the way that they operate and, and the sort of companies that they are, and particularly in terms of how they innovate. Yeah, so so I mean, at Regenerate Ventures, I focus less on the food because I think there are there are there was a lot of, I would say, repackaging of food. It's it's a brand and a marketing play, and I think there's a lot of investors out there already targeting the food side of things, how you change the way we eat and and, and what you deliver to the consumer. What we see less of, because it's a more challenging market, is is innovation upstream. It's technologies in 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 the farm gate, and and that's and that could be anything from hardware to sensors to seeds to uh, chemicals or reduction of use of chemicals. And we we're not seeing we're not seeing enough of that yet. We've seen R and D teams in these big companies reduce. Uh, in terms of size and budget and personnel, whilst the M&A teams are increasing in size and their corporate venture vehicles also increasing in size. So they're actively looking for acquisitions. They're actively looking for late-stage investments. And I think where, whilst on the food side, it's there's already there has been a lot of activity. And we've, we've seen that with lots of food brands being acquired by the large food companies because they're mm-hmm. looking at, 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 at keeping consumers' interest they're also realizing they need to get closer to the uh, to to the producers of the ingredients of those of of those food products. Yeah, yeah, it's the, 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 it's the bit about reducing R and D teams. I think interests me here because it seems to me that big ag is moving in direction of sort of what I think of as a big farmer model where. Previously, you had Glaxo was a really innovative company and you go back 30 years and generated lots of new drugs. And then it became effectively a selling vehicle and a lot of the new technologies or new drugs it buys in. And it seems to me that a similar thing is happening or maybe has happened in the agricultural space. Yeah, so last year I had the opportunity to go out to North Carolina a couple of times. And there's this really interesting, what I would call agricultural ecosystems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or agricultural innovation ecosystems in the states. St. Louis is one. Uh, North Carolina, the Research Triangle Park is another. Cornell is another. Uh, there's there's a number number of universities which we would call land grant, or they would call land grant universities, which which originally were funded to support agriculture. Mm-hmm. And we've seen innovation ecosystems like we have here in the UK with Oxford and Cambridge and and Imperial and and other other universities that are that are really focusing on spinouts. We see these innovation ecosystems formed to focus on specific themes or specific parts of research. And what's interesting about uh, a research triangle park in, in North Carolina is that it's, it only started 50, 60 years ago. And you had the likes of IBM and you had some of the big pharmaceutical companies there. And over, and you also had some very impressive universities in North Carolina. So you've got the you've got the talent, you've got the new talent coming through these academic organized, uh, institutions. You have jobs being created and employment being created by these large pharmaceutical businesses, by these large digital businesses. 
But after a while, especially in this day and age, a, a lot of those experienced people are now looking at the opportunity to to spin out technology or to 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 leave and create a startup. And so you've got this this really interesting ecosystem being formed around specific sectors. In this case, agriculture, where they've taken the learnings that they've had from other industries such as pharmaceuticals and life sciences, and actually looking at things like the microbiome. So it's not the microbiome that we have in our gut, it's it's the microbiome that exists in the soil. And some of these startups, uh, one of my advisors, Eric Ward, has, has launched, a, launched a, a company called AgBiome, which, which is all about mapping the world's soil and the microbiome in the soil, because we need to understand what's in the soil, because then what we understand is, is how we grow things and what we grow in the soil, and then the health benefits or the impact of what it is that we grow from that soil into 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 our bodies. So it's fascinating, and 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 I think sectors will 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 we're likely to see the same in the UK. We don't have any ag innovation hub, or we we do have a few little ones, but they're they're not as mature as they should be. And we but we're still we're seeing more interest from government to invest in these. We're seeing more interest in private investors, and we're seeing. Uh, academic institutions, as I've said, take an, take an active interest in this sector. So we'll see these ecosystems uh, build over time, uh, but uh, we're, we're still at the start. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And inevitably, when you've got something that's nascent, you start to wonder what are the risks or what are the threats to, to progress here? Because it all sounds very promising. And when something sounds too good to be true, I, my actual instinct is, Where's where's the risk? What, what am I missing? Well, there's you know it is it is a has a very promising future because if we look at the UK government, we've signed up to net zero by 2050. Mm-hmm. The National Farmers Union have signed up for the whole agricultural sector to be net zero by 2040. We've seen changes in policy. We've seen a a, a significant drive in 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 the need to change environmental land management system, scheme, as I, as I said earlier. It, it's it's these are these are already in play. These are going to happen. So we need to change. The industry needs to change. There are a lot of risks. Uh, one of the risks at the moment is a huge level of uncertainty. There's a level of uncertainty around what do food producers need to do to meet these regulatory changes because they're it's it's all very new. Mm-hmm. Do we have enough capital in the, in the mm-hmm. sector? No. We, we don't. I mean, in upstream technologies, I think it was last year, we probably only had 18 billion globally. We, we don't have, we've, only, we've seen some exits uh, in, in the sector, but we haven't seen enough exits. Mm-hmm. We've seen challenges around adoption and business models, which are getting better. But it's like any, like any space in, in startups, any sector in startups, you need enough capital and enough of a, of, a, of a drive in the market and enough innovators and entrepreneurs wanting to, to build technologies to give them the chance and the opportunity and the environment in which they can do that. And we don't have that yet. So the big risk is, is, that, is that we have very smart people building really smart and interesting technologies, but not being given the opportunity or the runway to take those, op- to take those investments to market. Yeah, that 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 would that would be a real shame. You talk about huge changes for the environment, in particular, there, and 
one thing that sort of struck me as as you're speaking about that is earlier you talked about farmers in particular taking on things that are incrementally changed. So they do so they adopt change in a way that fits in with their existing structures, what they're doing. Do you think there is a need for radical change in in some places? And if so, how do we get to that? Radical change. Yeah, I, I think I think most people in the agriculture sector would probably say the changes that are occurring today are pretty radical. The requirement to meet a a, a growing population's need and desire for certain food products and being able to grow those ingredients or food products in a more sustainable way with significant challenges around policy and restrictions on what it is that you can use is it, it, a challenge today. When we've seen changes in, in, in regulations around what pesticides can actually be used, Overnight, we see a shift from one crop to another, which means that you might not see enough oilseed rape going into Hellman's mayonnaise. So there might be a shortage in supply of Hellman's mayonnaise. We've seen uh, bird flu reduce the amount of turkeys and chickens available in the market. So we need to look at innovation that that try and solve some of these challenges. So I think I, I think it's there's there's a massive shift at right happening right now. Because the desire to decarbonize and to create a more biodiverse and more climate positive in food supply chain. Mm-hmm. What that actually looks like in the future is, is still to be determined, but there is a lot of uncertainty. I, I think at a, at a top level, thematically, there is a lot of change happening. But I think the change to get there will have to be incremental because you can't change the food supply chain overnight. You can't change the way and what we farm overnight unless you have national drivers behind that, like we've seen in in the world wars where some farmers were paid to pull out environmental, environmentally sustainable mm-hmm. hedgerows or, or, or change fields to be able to produce more food. And then suddenly they were paid not to produce food. So if the natural drivers are there, then yes, you could see a mm-hmm. significant change quickly. But but I think most of this innovation and adoption is going to be incremental because of the, the things that we spoke about earlier. So we've seen some stuff about the agricultural world, particularly with Ukraine recently, and sort of that affecting global supply. And we've seen stuff about concentration and particularly, obviously, Russia and Belarus were big supplies of potash. Are those just temporary things that don't really affect the underlying trends, or are these things that are actually directly influencing what's going on in ag tech? I, I think over the last three years, with the pandemic and then with Ukraine, it's put a significant pressure on the food supply chain globally. Mm-hmm. It hasn't been as easy to move produce around. Uh, it, it, there's a lot of countries that have realized that they need to shorten the supply chain. They need to be more aware of what where these products are coming from. You're right. Uh, Ukraine crisis has meant that there has been a significant impact on, let's say, wheat supplies or grain supplies generally mm-hmm. to uh, to Europe. You know, Ukraine was, I think it was about 60% 
of of Europe's, uh, for, and some countries were impacted a lot more than others. But that is a that is a, is a significant risk. And then you see a number of uh, companies that overnight had sanctions, which meant that a lot of European country uh, companies that required uh, fertilizer companies specifically that required those inputs to come from Russia no longer had those inputs available. So what that meant over the last couple of years is that fertilizer prices jumped. They, in some cases, quadrupled uh, and to, to all-time highs. Commodity prices also increased. But because of the seasonality of agriculture, where you buy your inputs 18 months in advance of actually harvesting and selling that crop, in the next 12 months, we'll see significant pressure on farmers. Whilst some 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 countries, sorry, some countries companies had a bumpy year who were who were trading some of these commodities last year, we'll see we'll see a more challenging environment over the next 12, 18, maybe 24 months, where fertilizer prices remain high, commodity prices have come off, but still sort of middling. But if you buy your inputs well in advance of actually being able to generate revenue on your outputs, you're going to struggle with cash flow. Mm-hmm. That in that combined with regulatory pressures means that you're more aware that things are having to change. Mm-hmm. So where I talked about things like biostimulants, the biostimulants is is not a new it's not a new market, but the level of interest in working out ways that you can sustainably increase your yield whilst at the same time reducing your inputs makes a lot more sense now. Why wouldn't you want to pay less for your inputs and try and be more profitable? Because we're, we're, it's, it's, we're in a tough time. It goes back to the financial crisis of 2008. When you've got lots of talent leaving, leaving banks, you've got a, 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 a financial crisis where access to capital isn't easy. Innovation occurs, and mm-hmm. we're seeing that with agriculture. There's a lot of really smart people developing really smart technology when and now agricultural businesses and farmers are actually looking at ways to innovate to reduce costs. So what I'd like to do now is move on to our favorite questions. So we throw these at you and we'll get your thoughts. So what was the most recent public announced investment you made and why did you make it? Oh, uh, well, there's one that's about to be announced, uh, and, I, and I've touched on it. This, this biostimulant company. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's a spin-out from from one of the universities. I've known this company and been involved in this company for for years. Uh, I'm I'm very impressed with the team. The team is is very very solid. They they have significant experience in the sector. They are uh, they're a good match of commercial and academic talent, which mm-hmm. is what you want from a university spin-out where it's not heavy either way. And as a biostimulant, as, as I've touched on, it's a, it's a market where you've got farmers asking for new innovative products in this space. And what's the difference between a biostimulant and a super and a fertilizer? Well, fertilizer is is what you would put on the crop to increase the yield once it's already in the ground. Whilst mm-hmm. the biostimulant is something that sort of excites the it excites the plant uh, or, or excites the crop at the right time to increase the level of growth at the right time, so that it is it is it is not as receptive to disease. 
mm-hmm. and can be stronger at the time at at the right time to give it the maximum gro- uh, boost in growth. It's probably the, the the best way to describe it. And it's a naturally occurring it's a naturally occurring um, uh, formula. It, it effectively the best way to look at it is that it increases photosynthesis. Okay, right. I, th- I think I understand what that is. <laughs> Um, this is the danger of this area, where you sort of, I, I know I know enough to be to know my ignorance. But <laughs> <laughs> same, so so do I, Brian. It's, uh, that's uh, we, we've got that in common. Um, so, in the classic VC triumvirate of market product management, we know they're all important, but for you, which is the most important? Oh, that's a tough one. You obviously need all three. I would say. I would say right now, it's the market. Mm-hmm. The market is important because you've got farm, farmers, landowners, companies crying out for innovation. They're crying out for new technologies and products. And what we need from innovators, what we need from investors is to na- take notice of what the actual market wants and needs and look at ways of supplying that. And then I think the product and management comes second. It's, I think it, it, it Within the within the sector, there's no point in building a product if the market doesn't need it. Fair enough. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from it. <laughs> oh, there's there's so many to choose from. Mm-hmm. I I guess there are businesses that I've launched in the past uh, that could have been bigger and more successful than they than they were or are. I think the thing that I learned from that journey or from those journeys were that the people that you get into business with should be aligned. You should have similar values and you should be aligned in long-term goals. And what I learned from, from each of those is that is that if you don't have if you don't have a good feeling initially, if you don't have if if in your gut it it doesn't tell you that the people that you're working with mm-hmm. Don't align with those with those with the same goals and values that you shouldn't move forward. Mm-hmm. There's a bit of mystery there, but uh, yeah, I don't I, want to give too much away. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we shall move on. I, we shall leave that to people's imaginations because I'm sure there's a story behind there that's probably I'm sure, difficult yes, to articulate. There definitely is. Yeah. Um, I've got one or two of my own, so I can sympathise. Um, <laughs> so the EIS. Industry that we work in is great in many ways, but it's not perfect. How would you like to change it? Yeah, uh, I think I've had the opportunity to talk about this a few times in the last twelve months. I, I, I think the thing I would like to see change, and I can and I can see it changing, is this is this whole concept of ESG impact and sustainability. I think these these words are bandied around uh, and there's not enough evidence in the market. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it's, I think we need to move from these types of terms from them being used in marketing materials or websites to actually being part of the practice mm-hmm. and part of procedures and part of what it is that we're, we're, we're doing as, as investors. I think if you're, if, if you're a, if you're a fund and you Want to invest in a portfolio that is clearly not impactful or ESG? Be proud of it. Be, be, be proud that you're investing in a sector or in technologies or in founders that, that are maybe not 
all about ESG or impact, but there is a market need for those products. But if you are an ESG or an impact investor or, 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 or using the term sustainability, be clear about what that actually means. Uh, I said about launching Regenerate Ventures after the last two because I really wanted to focus on, on ESG and sustainability. My last two funds don't. And, and, I, and I think it's, it's important just to, just to be clear what it is that you're doing and, and be proud of it, uh, be, proud of, be proud of the investments in the founders that you're supporting and investing in. Mm-hmm. And how do you think we go about that? I realize it's a big question, but you know, we're in a way, we're in a position where we are. The industry as a whole is progressing, some might say not quickly enough, some might say at least we're going in the right direction, but the industry is getting itself sorted out slowly, or do you think it's it, it's of there's too much greenwashing? I think we're a long way off, Brian. I think uh, I think we see we see way too much greenwashing. I think the when companies and this also applies to investors when they can call themselves impact or ESG investors or a, a net zero company or a sustainable company and not have to prove it mm-hmm. in any way or be responsible or accountable to public audits, then we're not going to change anything. Any company at the moment can call themselves a net zero sustainable company and there's no repercussions. There's no one to say, no, you're not. And I think it's the same with, with us as EIS or VCT investors is who's going to argue that, uh, that you're a sustainable investor or, or an impact investor. The proof is in the pudding. Look mm-hmm. at the portfolio. Yeah. So I think we've got, we've got a long way to go. And, but I, I, look, there's, there's, if, if you're a longstanding investor in the space and your portfolio is not impactful in any way or sustainable, it is what it is. It's, a, it, it's still your portfolio. But there's no need to, to polish it up or change, change the way it's labelled. Mm-hmm. I th- well, I think the fact that people are changing labels tells you that there's a degree of um, either embarrassment or a desire, to maybe you know, the, the, what they're doing hasn't quite hit their aspirations of where they want to get to yet if you've been charitable. Yeah, but... <laughs> I, I think I think the strategies. I, I think it's very easy to confuse strategies. Mm-hmm. Just because you're investing in a company doesn't mean it's not a financially good investment. It might not be impactful. It might not be sustainable. It might not be ESG. However, you define those, it might not be reducing the carbon uh, uh, carbon in any sort of supply chain. It may it may not be benefit, benefiting any supply chain, or what it might be doing. Is, is connecting a, a consumer with a seller, you know, an online marketplace. It's not, a, that's not a, it's a financially sustainable business model, and it could be a very good investment. But don't pretend it's anything else. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I, and I, and I, I just think that uh, us as investors, we, we need to mm-hmm. stand up and, and, and be honest. Mm-hmm. Do you think, it sounds almost like what you're saying is that it's, you need it for, to be okay to not be ESG. Is that is that yeah. really what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's well, I think it de- it, it depends on your definition of ESG. Well, I think <laughs> companies, I think companies you need to invest in are, are going to some can some can be more ESG than others. 
Some are baked into their DNA, all about some form of very, very deep ESG. They might be reducing food waste. They might be reducing chemical consumption. They might be reducing waste in another sector. They might be increasing the ability for underprivileged or, or, or reducing poverty in some way. So, so they've, they've, they've got strong ESG credentials. But then there are some companies that don't. Some companies don't have the technology, but they might be they might be a sustainable company in itself. They might be a they they might have some environmental credentials, but you'd hope that every company does. Yeah, yeah, and and this is this is a framework that I kind of have come to. I think where I've got I divide. I know it's a spectrum, and you you alluded to that. But in my mind, you have impact, what I call compliant. And nothing. And and basically, impact is you're doing good. Compliant yeah. is you're doing no harm, what, what you might call sustainable. And then, you know, the blank is that they, they haven't actually really thought about it or done anything yet, which is, for a lot of startups, is, is kind of acceptable as well in one way because, you know, they've got a lot to think about. But. Yeah, and most of them, and I think that the startups that I tend to see in in my pipeline, they have obvious ESG. I mean, they're, they're looking at innovation in the food supply chain to reduce inputs. So I, I, I'm lucky in that. Well, I'm not lucky. You know, the fund was created to be a true ESG fund, an environmentally impactful, climate-friendly fund. But not all funds uh, have the ability to do that because they have existing portfolios. And I and I think I think startups might have the aspiration of being a true ESG or environmentally friendly, nature-positive company. Mm-hmm. But they still need to prove themselves. So mm-hmm. maybe if we can aspire to that. But we shouldn't We, we shouldn't be mislabeling things just because we feel we have to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's tough. I've got me. I, you know, I've started to include ESG as part of the diligence we're doing on funds um, mm. for our report. Probably not as thoroughly as as maybe we might, but it's still interesting to see what different people are doing and the way that you know the and the way that people present. Sometimes, as you say, um, overemphasize um, what they're doing, and yeah, it, it, it's it's a challenge. Mm, yeah, and I think there's 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 no harm there's no harm in bringing more oversight and more sight of what it mm-hmm. is, what it means to be an ESG investor or an impact investor, uh, and and let's let's all try and improve if that's mm-hmm. if that if that's what it is that we want to try and do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully, hopefully that's what most people want to do. So uh, we can uh, we'll hopefully see more progress in that area. Let's hope so. So, as listeners know, I'm an avid reader. I'm always up for getting some recommendations. Are there any books out there you like and recommend? I, I wish I had more time to read uh, books. Um, uh, a, a book I read uh, a while back, uh, which I really enjoyed, was uh, a book called The Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton mm-hmm. Christensen. Yes. You've read that? I'm afraid I have, yes, but it's, okay. it's a classic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think I, I was probably late to the game. But uh, I, I remember someone someone saying that it was it was the only it was the only book that uh, Steve Jobs raved about, and it was about the requirement for uh, for large companies to innovate and to 
try and work out how to disrupt in their in their industry, but how they how they should look at new markets and look at new segments, and how they shouldn't be afraid to adopt risk, but also why they fail if they do. Uh, so I I found that uh, I found that book fascinating, especially having done some time within a corporate and seeing the inefficiencies mm-hmm. firsthand. Uh, uh, how corporates are trying to innovate, they're trying to change the way they are, but there's, uh, you know, it's very difficult to 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 change direction of a very large ship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 I and I, uh, you know, there's there's a, there's this whole concept of cultural change. You know, you have to try and imp- put the drivers in place to try and encourage this innovation internally, but it's it doesn't always work. Mm-hmm. I found that very fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I, I certainly, I've I've seen. I, I think the thing that appealed to me was the solution of creating silos for innovation. Yeah. Um, where you, so you have a little division that is some way segregated from the rest of the business, so it doesn't have that pressure um, to to sort of do the day to day business. Exactly, exactly. And we've seen and we've seen a lot more a lot more evidence of that uh, definitely in the last decade of companies out there that help corporates innovate that create these silos that create this these little working teams around understanding the the the, the challenges and the friction internally within these corporates and what the market mm-hmm. need is and actually creating innovative products uh, and and matching mm-hmm. and and matching uh, uh market need and resources with uh, innovators so i i think we with this i think the market's come on a lot but uh, you can also see firsthand these these large companies are still struggling mm-hmm. for many reasons. Yeah, yeah, it, it's clearly not a simple problem, and you can understand how yeah, some not. companies might get to grips with it. Yeah, and might only get to grips with it for some t- for a period of time, and then and then lose that grip. But yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Sorry, sorry to have chosen something that you've already read. I'll uh, I'll think of I'll, I'll think of think of another book that uh, hopefully you haven't read, and uh, I can send you that. That's okay. I I should probably go back and read it again. I think it's one of these books that would definitely bear a second reading. What do you wish you knew when you started venture investing that you know now? Uh, I I think there's probably two things. The first would would be to be consistent, mm-hmm. uh, and that and that and that covers a lot of bases. Consistency. I think the other the, the other big one is probably even more so than consistency is not being afraid to shout about both successes and failures. And and the reason for that is I think venture venture investing or investing generally is a, is about matching capital to opportunities and being able to you know investors would invest with a venture fund because we would hopefully know the market better than and an investor would, and we're in a unique position to put their capital to work into a sector that clearly is going somewhere, and there's there's a high chance of financial return. Mm-hmm. But I think being able to be consistent and 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 shouting about it allows you to not only get the attention of that capital, but also get the attention of the best opportunities in the market. I think historically venture venture investing has hid behind a wall of secrecy less so these days uh, and and it's probably easier for companies to find venture investors but it's about finding the right investors mm-hmm. and if you are consistent and you're you're happy to talk about 
what it is that you're succeeding in, you're failing in, then hopefully you can you can attract the right capital and you can attract the right opportunities and you can build a uh, you can build a very successful venture model. Mm-hmm. Well, that all sounds very good. <laughs> <laughs> in hindsight. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, we could all be the perfect company with hindsight. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So if anyone wants to find out more about what you're doing at Regenerate, where should they go? Well, our, our website, regenerate.ventures, uh, or reach out to me directly um, uh, via LinkedIn or via the website, um, Paul Rouse. Okay. We shall post links to all of those in the show notes. Fantastic. Thank you very much for coming on today, Paul. I've really enjoyed chatting about the agritech area. Wonderful. Thanks very much, Brian. I really appreciate your time. I hope you enjoyed hearing about agritech from Paul. It's interesting how there is a combination of underlying structural trends and micro-market changes that are coming together at the same time. As usual, you can get full show notes with links at harmonandco.com forward slash podcast. If you like what you hear, please give us a review with lots of stars on your podcast app. You can also subscribe directly on all good podcast services and players or through the link in the show notes. We can be contacted at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Thanks for listening and we'll be back in two weeks' time.